I hope you have a Bible. If you do, we're in 2 Kings chapter 5 this morning. 2 Kings, not too far into the Old Testament, about halfway, I guess, between, the, between Genesis and Malachi, between Genesis and the New Testament. Uh, I want to start out by reading the first um, eight verses of that text. We'll read some more in a little while. Um, it's not often that I don't have a lot of things to say. Um, y'all can laugh about that. Um, sometimes there are some weeks, um, some services where it's more of a struggle than others to kind of come up with, uh, to, to, to be obedient to God. It's not that God doesn't have anything to say. He always has something to say. His book is pretty thick, right? He has a lot to say. Um, and it's always good stuff, right? Um, but messengers like me and, and people like me in positions like mine are often um, weak, often flawed, often um, uh, prone to, to not listen clearly and not follow through um, as they should. So some weeks are... Uh, not difficult, but murkier or foggier than others, but I'm thankful that God led me to this text, um, and I feel like a lot of our talk this morning will be um, a lot up front. We'll kind of just be speculating and, and thinking about what it's like uh, to be in Naaman's shoes. This text is about a man named Naaman, um, and then later on, um, I think we'll, we'll realize uh, what God was trying to teach him and what I th- hopefully uh, God can teach us today. So I believe we've got something good uh, in store for us today. So Second Kings chapter 5, The scripture says, Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor. This means he had a great reputation. But he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her masters, If only my master were here with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, ten changings of clothing. So a lot of, uh, a lot of money to hopefully bribe the Israeli uh, uh, king to allow a Syrian soldier into his gates. Um, and also he took a lot of clothes because as a leper his skin would have constantly needed dressing and redressing. So we see the, 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 the riches of Syria, but also the poverty uh, and the challenge this man was facing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised when the letter comes to you that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive? And this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So the king thought this was just an act of, uh, a, a trick to cause trouble and to lead him in the war. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. He shall know that there is a prophet, and more importantly, somebody else in Israel. A few weeks ago, um, I was one of those people that um, was wishing for fall to get here, um, the weather to be cooler than warmer, and then um, we finally hit that point in the season, that transition between summer and fall, later than normal, of course, but that transition where it's 80 degrees one day and then it's 60 degrees the next day, and that has led my head to the transition period where I can't decide or it can't decide if I'm going to be able to breathe from one day or the other. Um, so pardon um, the stuffiness uh, from, from uh, my uh, agency, but, but that's what I've come to expect by this time of year, um, as many of you deal with, right? It's just par for the course. 
we, we, we struggle with it until uh, spring rolls around, and it's a whole other kind of allergy season, right? But nonetheless, I'm excited to be finally able to enjoy the season, you know, and, and I don't know what part of autumn or what part of fall is your favorite. Uh, maybe you're one of those pumpkin people. Um, and I don't mean that as a pejorative, and I'm not talking about the people from Willy Wonka. They're different kind of pump. They're orange, but not pumpkin people, right? Um, y'all know those. I don't want to. Y'all know Oompa Loompas. We can sing the song later um, for the invitation. Um, but but just uh, maybe you're one of those people who's obsessed with uh, pumpkin drinks and pumpkin pies and candles. Um, and I hope not. But if you are, there's hope for you. Um, we're not we're not a laughing crowd today, right? Um, I, I love you. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not prejudiced toward pumpkin aficionados, but I love pumpkin bread, and uh, I used to think I love pumpkin everything, um, but over Labor Day weekend, um, my, Lindsay decided to light some pumpkin candles in our house, and uh, I almost went into a coma, not the good kind, um, if there is a good kind. I, <laughs> I almost went into, I, I had a reaction, so I'll tell more about that story later on. But needless to say, I'm a little bit scared of pumpkins this time of year. I went to a pumpkin patch yesterday, and I was afraid to touch them um, because maybe what's on the inside would, would come out through, um, you know, just through contact. But um, anyway, but fall is more than just pumpkin season. You know, whether you're into sports or maybe you're just into breaking, you're, you're glad you don't break a sweat every time you leave the house. That's a good thing, right? Um, it's really a refreshing time of year. But it's also a spooky time of year, right? Um, and everybody loves this 1920s classic, Hit Space Bar again. They start dancing. Um, uh, Walt Disney's uh, Skeleton Symphony. Um, I, I like the spooky side of things this season, um, but, uh, you know, just nothing really scary. But I don't mind to, to, uh, to, to kind of delve into the, the spooky stuff from this season. Um, but I, as long as it's not really scary. Does that make sense? I like scary, but not if it's really scary. I like being scared as long as I'm not really being scared. Does that make sense? It probably doesn't. Um, I like scary movies, just not the devilish kind. Um, I like corn mazes and haunted houses where you're being chased, um, but not really being chased. Does that make sense? Um, that controlled kind of anxiety, you know, that controlled adrenaline, right? It's kind of, I, I like that feeling. Maybe you don't, but uh, maybe we would get along at one of those things. I don't know. Um, I've always liked playing spooky video games, and, and, and last year I got this VR headset for Christmas. Uh, Lindsay got it for me, and, and I got this spooky game that uh, she took a video of me playing it, and if y'all promise not to fire me, um, and enough people ask, I might, I might show you how ridiculous I look when I play it. I probably won't do that, but maybe if you ask nice enough. Um, but I don't know if you'd call this the spookiest time of year or not, but there's plenty out there to be spooked by for fun or not so fun. Um, but let's just be honest. Nobody likes to be afraid, right? We can kid about spooky stuff all we want, but nobody likes to be afraid. No one likes to be really afraid. And, and if you're like me, if you don't like something, you try very hard to avoid it, right? And some things are inevitable and impossible to always and forever avoid. And fear, fear is one of those things that as much as we don't like it, we deal with it a lot, don't we? And now whether we have to entertain it and keep it around is one thing, but the reality uh, is that all of us have to deal with fear. Sometimes we go through seasons of fear, and I'm not talking about Halloween, right? I'm talking about those prolonged periods of time when we're just dealing with and facing our worst fears on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and maybe you've been there before. Maybe you're there right now where you've come face-to-face -face with your fears all too often, all too regularly. And maybe this doesn't describe you, and I hope that it doesn't, but if for a minute I could get you to imagine the unimaginable, to consider what you hope you never have to consider, what are you most afraid of? 
What are you really afraid of? I know that's pretty open-ended, but what keeps you up at night? And I don't, I'm not talking about the monsters in your closet or the ghosts in the shadows. I'm talking about what really makes you lie in bed and wonder. What makes you drift at work? What causes you to worry and panic and lose your focus? What causes you to overthink or tempt you to undermine? What causes you to lose sight of what you do have and worry over what you don't have? What causes you to wonder what you might not ever get to do? Maybe your mind is rushing because you've lived in this place. Maybe you're living in this place of fear right now. Maybe you know what it is, and thankfully it's not a reality right now, but just the thought of it, maybe being, uh, you know, just the thought of possibly worrying over something causes you to drift to that place. And, and, and since we're friends, I'll tell you what I worry about. I'll tell you what I'm most scared of, and it's not knowing. I don't claim to be smart, but I'm pretty well-versed and studied enough in several different subjects that I can turn to the right page in a book and figure out something pretty quickly if I don't know it. And if I don't know, I know where to look. And we live in the age of information. Every one of us, right? We can just Google it, right? And you can figure out, you can find something or another about the subject. But there are some seasons and situations that I find myself in where even if someone knows, there's no way for me to know, right? Even if they know, I can't know. And even if you know, I can't, you can't convince me or give me enough proof that I would know. And the thought of not knowing, the thought of not knowing something terrifies me. I read, I listen, I watch, I study, I research, I reread, I re-listen, I re-watch, I re-study, I re-research. I am constantly searching out and seeking out information. I love to know because I'm so afraid of not knowing. That's just me. Nothing wrong with not wanting to know. Nothing wrong with not being interested in knowing everything. But that's just me. And because I love knowing so much, I get so afraid when I don't know. But the reality of life is that not every season of life has a corresponding textbook. Not every relationship has a guidebook, and not every challenge can be overcome by obtaining knowledge, right? And there is, this is where the preacher side of me, this is where the student of Scripture, the purveyor of theology, has to humble myself. This is where the preacher and teacher side of me who is passionate about learning and knowing and applying and if we just read it enough, we'll figure it out. If we just come enough and study enough and worship enough, we'll get there. This is where the preacher and teacher side of me has to defer to an even higher calling, which is pastor. Because pastors must admit, as much as they might not want to, pastors must admit, as much as it makes the preacher side of us look like we don't know everything, pastors must be honest with people and not mislead or deceive people. This is where the pastor side of me has to clearly say, sometimes we aren't going to, sometimes you aren't going to, sometimes I'm not going to know. And that scares me. Maybe it scares you. Maybe you're someone that thinks, oh, I know everything. I'll always figure out a way. But you've been there, haven't you? You've been there where you find yourself. You are facing the unknown. You're facing unknowns. And maybe right now, somewhere, somebody in here, maybe all of you, at some, in some way, shape, or form, you're facing some kind of unknown. You're facing some measure of unknowns. Unknowns concerning what you're going through. Unknowns regarding what you're going to do. Unknowns that you wanted to avoid. Unknowns that you could not have avoided. And unknowns are com complicated with it when it comes to our relationship with God. 
Because we often assume we expect that knowing God should erase any and all unknowns. And maybe you've been taught that. Maybe someone in my position stood up at a place like this and told you that if you know God, you'll know everything and you'll never be left in the dark or never be left in a place where you won't know. That if God's on my side, then I shouldn't have to deal with unknowns. And maybe that's how you see faith. And maybe that's how you understand Christianity. That if God is with me, then I should know everything. And if he doesn't tell me something, then he's holding back on his part of the deal. I mean, God wouldn't do that to me, would he? God wouldn't leave me hanging like that, would he? And we don't even need to consult the Bible or pray about some things. We think, I mean, it just makes sense to assume that when we know God, there shouldn't be any unknowns. And while that statement might prove to be true, it's not the way we often initially arrive there. We often develop the idea about God because we think God will make things more clear, more perceptible, more understanding, right? And here's where the Word is going to give us so much help today. Here's where the Spirit of God, we seek Him and hope that He gives us help today. We encounter a man whose only perception of God, his only perception of God is, his understanding of God is that God could erase the unknowns. God can clarify what life has complicated. God can fix what I've broken. And since God can, He should. And He kind of has to, doesn't He? And maybe that's where you're at today. And maybe your, your frustration with God, maybe the reason why your faith is not growing, maybe the reason why you've kind of been stunted in your walk with Christ, maybe the reason why you've never took faith serious is because you look from the outside in and you think, listen, God should be able to erase, God should be able to clarify, God should be able to fix, and it doesn't seem like He's doing that. And if you're new to church, if you've never studied the Bible, this story, I think, is, is so powerful it, it has that wow factor that so many stories, I think, lose over time. We see these two cultures coming together. A, someone who's heard about God and someone who truly knows God meet and have an, a miraculous encounter. This is one of the stories that is larger than the sum of its parts. It offers us such a moral, such a powerful message. At least to me it does. Because this is a story about expectations. This is a story about a man who has expectations for what God is going to give him. And all of us have expectations when it comes to different things in life, don't we? We expect certain things from certain days, certain people, certain relationships. We expect things from church. We expect things from our job. We expect things from a government or from our leaders or from an event that we might attend. We usually don't enter into too many things, if anything, if we don't already have a good idea of what we are to expect and if they'll be met. And here's where we're going to go with this story today. It addresses an expectation that all of us have at some point in our life. This might be an American thing. It might be an expectation we have because we're more privileged than others. But at some point in life, at some point in life, we expect God to give us an explanation. We expect God to make sense of any and all unknowns. Why did you let this happen to me, God? Why did you cause that to happen, God? Why should I have to deal with this, God? Why is this commandment in the Bible, and why should I take it serious, God? And here's what I found out from reading the Bible, from observing it, and from studying it. There aren't a lot of those, yet that does not stop us from expecting them. There's not a lot of explanations, yet we still expect them, don't we? And people like me feel like it's our jobs to be the middleman and bridge these gaps. And we try to make sense between the unknown and the questions. And you might come to places like this and you hear people like me hoping, expecting these things, these sorts of explanations. 
Why did God do this? Why did God allow that? Why does God expect me to do this or do that? For what reason does the Bible say this or say that? We feel this nudge, this unction, this expectation, and we get to a place where we think God owes us a reason. Before we accept something or before we do something, for as much knowledge that we have obtained in our faith journeys, we often come face to face with many unknowns. And we wonder, what gives God? And it's okay until we feel like God is asking something of us that challenges us beyond our limitations. And at some point, listen, at some point in your walk with God, God is going to require you to do something without giving you an explanation. At some point in your walk with God, you are going to come face to face with a requirement from God, an obligation from God, a calling from God, a request from God, however you want to phrase it. You are going to come to some point in your walk with God where He is going to call you to do something and He's not going to give you a reason or an explanation for it. And you're going to pray and you're going to search and you're going to look and you're not going to find any at all. At some point in your walk with God, He's going to meet you in the unknown and not explain it, but ask you to step into it. I hope this never happens for you, but it will. And it will be for your good. It will be for your good, and once you get through it, you'll look back and say, wow, I cannot believe I doubted God. But at the precipice, at the edge, looking into it, you're going to think, this is impossible. Isn't there a verse that says this won't happen? Isn't there a verse or a prayer I can pray to get out of this? Isn't God going to somehow show up and say, no, 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 I, 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 I was just tricking you. Maybe this has already happened to you, and if so, you know what happens next. But if it hasn't, and what most, likely, what most likely comes after this for many of us, when we feel like God is asking us to do something, and we haven't been given a reason, or we haven't been given an explanation, when we feel like God has kind of left something out of the story, or left something out of the explanation, you know what most of us do? Most of us stand still. Because we're not going to walk into the unknown if we don't know what's going to happen, right? You're not going to take that step unless you've got a little bit of insurance or a little bit of proof, right? You're, you're going to stand there with your arms crossed, or you're going to stand there with your head down, and you're going to say, God, I'm waiting on you to part the waters. I'm waiting on you to move the mountain. I'm waiting on you to raise the dead. I am not going to step any farther. And you know what? You're going to feel stuck and frozen and lost and confused. You're going to think, God, God, I thought you were going to make things easier, not harder. Clearer, not muddier. Straight, not crooked. And you're going to be tempted to stand still and turn around and maybe even give up. When met with expectations from God, we often wait or demand for an explanation from God. And I think part of the reason we are like this is because we live in a world where so much about God has been explained. We, we know so much about how God works. What God has done has been written about and fleshed out. We know how God works in so many ways. Unlike in the Old Testament world, unlike in the New Testament world, unlike up until a few hundred years ago, we have figured out so much that allows us to dismiss God from many corners of our life. Science explains so much at how God works, right? Biology explains so much. Climatology explains so much. Chemistry, all these different sciences, all these different fields of study, they explain so much that used to people would just have to assume that God did it. And of course, God still does it, but we've been able to explain God away, haven't we? 
We don't turn to God and accept His way. We know His way, right? We don't have to wonder, well, why is it being that way? Or why has that happened that way? We just know, right? Nothing wrong with knowing. But it's true that it frees us from this place the ancients were at. I mean, imagine if, if an eclipse happened in the ancient world, they thought the gods were mad at them. And they sacrificed people until the sun shined again. Right? But we're smart, aren't we? We know, oh, that's just a natural you know, happenstance that it happens every so many years. We can predict things like that. We know how things work. Every disease isn't a demon. Every storm isn't the apocalypse. And doesn't that make us a little arrogant? Because we know so much. Knowledge often makes us arrogant and dismissive of our need for God. We even begin to treat God like He's lucky to still have us. It's like when you were a kid and you went to a magic show and you were like, wow. And then somebody was like, Psst, I'll tell you how that was done. And you think, I'm never going back. It doesn't make what the magician did any less impressive. But you were too smart to go back and watch those shows anymore, weren't you? See, with enlightenment comes empowerment. We back down and tone down our praise. Since I know how you did it, I'm not impressed anymore. It's like we figure out how someone makes the watch or makes the phone, and we lose our wow factor towards the Creator and the creation. It's as if because we're so smart, we don't have to submit because we know how to control things. I mean, we can push back against aging and disease, disability, things that have stopped our predecessors don't stop us anymore. Generations of people were met with the response from doctors, there's nothing we can do. Ancient people went to witch doctors, right? But now there's a lot they can do. And we can defy gravity. We can control, predict, and manipulate. And with all of that, we've lost our sense of wonder, our sense of awe of God. As we've replaced Him, we've dismissed Him, we've figured out how the Master does His work. And even though it doesn't take away from the wonder of it all, somehow we act like it does. And because of this, because we figured out so much, for us believers especially, we come to our faith as if it's a secondary source. It's like we've got God in a corner. And it's like He owes us so much more than, and that when it comes to things we face in life, unknowns and uncertainties, we think, okay God, tell me how this is going to work out. But what if... What if God doesn't owe us an explanation? What if God is God? And what if He is sovereign? And what if just because we figured out how some things work, it doesn't diminish who He is and the reality that there are many things above and beyond our ability to understand or comprehend? We think we know how God works. It's almost like our knowledge about God tricks us into thinking that we can control Him. But what if God is still God? And what if He's sovereign and He doesn't owe anyone an explanation at all? And what if, just because we think we know something about Him, it doesn't mean that He always bends toward our expectations? And what if? What if God defies expectations on some occasions, if only to stretch and grow our faith? Would He do that? Absolutely. He would. And He does. And what if that's the motive behind God's work in your life? What if He's not worried about explaining everything? What if that's not for our best anyways? 
at some point in everyone's life. At some point in your life, there will be an explanation that doesn't meet our expectations. And you will have to make a choice. We will have to make a choice. We will be required to say, even though I don't understand, even though I don't agree, even if I can't predict or figure out how this is going to go, you will be required if you are going to be obedient. If you are going to stay faithful, when you are met with an explanation that does not satisfy you, when you are met with expectations that does not, do not fit with what you were looking for, when you are met with an unknown, you are going to have to make a choice. Will you say, God, I still trust you. God, I still will obey you because you are still God. Is God enough of a reason to obey? In our story, we find a man who is at the end of his rope. He's a man of great valor, a man of great accomplishment, but underneath all the armor, underneath all the badges and all the trophies and all the success, is a deteriorating skin disease that will eventually cost him his life. And on the battlefield, Naaman was a successful warrior, but every battle he got a little slower. Every battle he got a little bit weaker. Every season of life he got a little bit less confident in his ability to put his armor on and pretend like nothing was wrong underneath. Naaman hears of a man named Elisha in a land called Israel where there is a lot of activity regarding supernatural and miracles. Naaman hears of this man named Elisha who has the power of his God at his fingertips. And he thinks, well, maybe this man, Elisha, can help me as well. So Naaman makes a trip down to Samaria. He sends before him a letter to the king of Israel. The king of Israel thinks this is just a trick by Syria to get into war, which was always going on back in the day. So no doubt they have a little bit of misunderstanding there for a while. And then, verse number 9 tells us that Naaman went... At the request of Elisha, Naaman went with his horses and his chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. Because the bureaucracy was going to get in the way, Naaman said, Guys, I've got to know what's going on. I've got to get this problem fixed sooner than later, so I've got to take things into my own hands. I am going to go see Elijah today. Hmm. Maybe there's an area you're wrestling with God over today, a choice, a commandment, something that he's called you to do, something he, you're struggling with, a relationship. Maybe God's asking you to step out into an area that you're not really sure of what it's going to look like if you do. Maybe God is moving in you to, to, to take that step of faith. There's always something more at stake, though. And I want to tell you this. When God is dealing with you about something internally, there's always something more at stake than simply the details and circumstances surrounding your obedience. See, Naaman thinks the only thing that matters is his little problem. It's a big problem to him, but the rest of the world, it's just a small thing, right? Nobody even knows about it. And what God is orchestrating in this scenario, in this event, is actually going to change the way that both countries see each other and even Samaria, even Syria, the way they understand the Jewish God. And I want to tell you that something bigger hangs in the balance. Something bigger hangs in the balance than just our personal particular choice. So Elisha says, send Naaman to me. He may have shown up to be healed, but God has something bigger in store for him. He's going to walk out knowing something about Israel's God. So Elisha lived way out into the badlands. You can imagine when the armies began to march through these, uh, these territory, people began to flee thinking that war has come to their home. 
Naaman shows up in this deserted, dusty backside of Israel. He waits for Elisha to recognize his glorious arrival, expecting there to be a, a, a you know, pageantry and red carpets and trumpets and all the things that you would give a dignitary like Naaman. But verse number 10 says that Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. Your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. Elisha does not even have the respect to come out of his house. He sends a messenger, he sends a servant to come out and say, well, here's what Elisha says you should do if you want to be healed. You should go way back down south, cross the Judah border, go into the Jordan River. You should take a bath there and you should, you'll be healed. But make sure you do it the same number of times. I got to go. Elisha's busy. See you later. And Naaman's thinking, I don't need a bath. I need to be healed. I've been here and there, and now you want me to go all the way back down? And he's been up and down the roads, up and down the mountains of Israel. This is how we feel when we get advice that we really didn't ask for. This is how when somebody says, hey, you should do this or you should do that, we're thinking, I don't need that, I need this. We ask for answers and we get advice that we might recognize as good, but it's not what we came for. In verse number 11, Naaman became furious and he went away saying, Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Now, where did Naaman get that idea from? Naaman says, I thought, I thought, I expected the prophet of God to come outside, conjure up his spirit, the lightning would fall, the thunder would, would, would clash, the, the skies would darken, and the spirit of God would come down and would embody me or overwhelm me, and I would be healed instantly. I was expecting a mighty, wonderful demonstration of this God's power. And I got a little note to go take a bath and a river. I would not have come here if that's what I was going to get. I went to church, I read, I did this, and I thought this would happen. Haven't you been there before? I thought God would do this. I expected God to do this. I thought it would work out this way, and it didn't, so I'm out. I mean, I heard about Mount Carmel. I heard about what God did on Mount Carmel. I expected as much. I heard about the Red Sea. I heard about David and Goliath. I heard about the manna and the quail. I heard about all those miracles. And I don't get anything like that. <laughs> Do you know who I am? I'm Naaman. This isn't what I was expecting. This makes no sense. And the guy didn't even have the decency to come out and tell me himself. And you know what? This is where our minds start wondering, right? We start thinking, well, maybe God doesn't care. Maybe God doesn't have time for me. Maybe God doesn't, maybe God doesn't, maybe God isn't, maybe I shouldn't. And we start to doubt, don't we? Verse number 12, are not the Abana and Parfar and the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So we turned and went away in a rage. I mean, and on top of that, the rivers in Syria are cleaner. I mean, you know, this religion, it's not really got that much going for it. I mean, our way back home is better than this. And you told me this was going to be the way, and I came and checked it out. And it's not impressive at all. Verse 13, and his servants came and spoke, My father, if the prophet had asked you or told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more when he, then when he says, wash and be clean? I mean, I don't know about this. 
Naaman, but I mean, maybe it's simple because it is simple. And maybe we just complicate things. If he had asked you to do some grand, large, silly task, you would have done it, but what if it's really this simple, and no, it doesn't make any sense, but what if that's the point? Verse number 14. He went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, but according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Verse 15. And he returned to the man of God and he and all of his aides and came and stood before him and said, Indeed, now I know, I bet he did. Now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now therefore, please take this gift from your servant. What do you think he said? What, do you, what, do you, what would you have expected him to say? He just got his life back. He was healed. But his response to the healing is not anything about the healing. He says, now I know something I didn't even come to know, something I didn't even come expecting or looking for. Now I know there is no God in all the earth except the God of Israel. He took this unusual step and met and encountered and experienced God. Do you see the connection there? He was told to do something so unusual. And he didn't just receive his healing. He encountered God. And he didn't even come to encounter God. See, maybe God knows that you need something more than you're actually looking for. Maybe God is a good father. And maybe God is such an infinite, wise God that he knows what you need and it's bigger and better than what you're looking for. And he sees you asking for this, but he says, I've got this for you. And I know you need that, but you need this more. And I know you need this, and I know it would make your life and your dream come true, but I've got something bigger and better for you. And if I just gave you that, you would just walk away, and you would be spoiling your joy on something that's so small, and it was something that's so temporary. But I've got something so much bigger for you, and it's going to take a little bit of time for you to get here because you're not always going to understand my way. But if you just trust me, there is an encounter you, can, you will never have with God until you decide to obey God. And you may never have a good reason to obey God. God doesn't owe us an explanation at all. After all, God is God. Whether it's financial, relational, with parents, kids, spouse, job, the next step, all the explanations you are looking for will, for will not be with you until you first obey Him. You'll never have this encounter with God where heaven meets earth and your heart pounds violently as if God is actually moving into your presence. When our obedience intersects with God's faithfulness, you'll never have that experience until, until, until you obey Him for the sake of Him being God alone. And when it does, God becomes alive in a way that we, he, sh he would have never had otherwise. So my grand conclusion to this whole long talk today is God is the reason we obey God. That might not be the reason you're looking for. That might not be the reason that you walk out of here singing praises for. But God is the reason. He is the reason. We don't need an explanation. And there are times we get one, but those aren't the reasons. God is enough of a reason. And in these moments when we obey and no one else understands why, and people think we're crazy, and we think we're crazy, in these moments we encounter God in a way that we could, never could have otherwise. And in these moments, 
the cost of, a, of our obedience becomes secondary to the glory of encountering God. And in the moment of whatever you have to give up, whatever you've got to say no to, the cost of your obedience will pale in comparison to the glory of the encounter. Jesus said on the last night of his life, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is it who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest and reveal myself to him. There's a lot of things Jesus asks us to do sometimes that sometimes we don't know if we can do it or not. And Jesus said, listen, you'll never experience a part of me. You'll never experience all of me until you trust me and do what I've told you to do on the basis of I am your Savior. There's a connection and an awareness of God that only comes with this kind of obedience. There's a revelation of God that only comes from obedience to God. Because you know what's at the core of that transaction? You know what is at the core of that transaction when you obey God? When it would have been easier not to? When you obey God, obedient in spite of explanations and expectations, at the core of that transaction is faith. Faith that says we do it because we believe God is who He claims to be. What if God does not owe us an explanation at all? What if God is the reason we obey God? Naaman never mentions leprosy again, but he does mention that, oh my God, I just met the God of Israel. He tries to pay Elisha, and Elisha says, I don't want that. I wanted you to meet God, not me. And then Naaman makes a very strange request. Naaman asks if he can take a shovel of dirt from Elisha's land back home. Now in the ancient world, they thought God was tied to the land of, the, of whatever land he was from. He wanted to spread this dirt on top of his dirt at home because he met the living God. He wanted the God of Israel's land over his. Many of you, you're on the verge of this sort of interaction but you're on the edge. You've got to make a choice to obey God, not about what, not about why. It's about who. And to understand why, we've got to submit and apply. We'll forget why we ever ask why, because we'll meet the who behind and above the why. See, Naaman wanted a why before he obeyed. But he got his why even greater, he met the who behind the why after his obedience. I don't know what God is wanting you to do or stop doing. Somebody he wants you to be, but there's always the next step that he wants you to take. And until we obey God because of who he is, we will never enjoy all of who he is. God doesn't owe us an explanation. He is the explanation. He's waiting on us to trust and obey for there is no other way. Watch and see that He will do beyond this scenario that is directly in front of you. It'll be much bigger than that because God is much bigger than that. When we know God, we really don't need to know anything else. Unknowns bow and even rest at His throne. I'm not saying that you're going to get there today or you'll be there tomorrow or that you're a bad person if you don't get there today. But I do say, and I do believe, that you can get to that place where your unknowns will bow and rest at the throne of the God you can know. 
About 7.50 this morning, I was a little bit discouraged, kind of having a rough time in prayer. I walked outside, noticed it was kind of strange, the lighting was weird. And I walked outside and it was raining. The sun was beaming down from this angle. The rain was pouring down and just over the horizon was a rainbow. And just in that moment, it was just so powerful as the Spirit of God began to move the rain, the sun, the rainbow. In that moment, I, I was reminded that God's mercies are always new. His blessings are always better. His grace is always enough. I bowed my head and I prayed and I came back inside and walked right back outside. The rainbow was gone. The sun was hidden. The rain had stopped. Of course, it continued to rain on and off. But maybe that moment was just for me. To remind me that sometimes you don't know. And it's okay. Because God's mercy is always enough. His grace is always enough. His blessings are always better. He is always faithful. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you and I'm thankful that your grace is enough. That your blessings are better. That your mercies are new. That you are faithful. Father, often in life we try so hard to know everything, but sometimes we just don't know. And Father, I pray that you might would whisper to your people today like you whispered to me this week, it's okay to not know. Because you know the God that does. Father, I pray that all of us can have that name and moment where we are looking after one thing, but then you show us another thing. But it's only when we obey you for the sake of who you are. When we obey you because you are God and God alone deserves our obedience and our praise. Father, I pray you would bring us to that place of humility, that place of dependence on you. Father, it takes a lot of faith. Or does it? We think that it's going to require some great act or some great sacrifice of us, but honestly, it just requires that we put our trust in you and you alone. And I pray, pray that as we sing this last song, Father, that you might would give us the faith that we need to trust you and to obey you and to never doubt you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.